0: Hey guys, this is David. I just wanted to let you know that today's episode is about neo-Nazi groups and white supremacists. And we are going to be presenting a lot of what they say in their own words. There's going to be a lot of sound bites with really strong language, hate speech, calls for violence, a lot of sensitive material. And this podcast, we usually want it to be something that literally anybody can listen to, anybody can engage with. So we thought it was only fair to have a warning up front, viewer discretion advised. But if you want to join us, come on in. I think that it's going to be a really informative time.
1: begin the internet a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities to explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds only some are brave enough to be called the internet explorers
0: Welcome to the Season 2 premiere of Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I'm your host, David Ryan Anderson. And I am your other host, Evan Axel Anderson. We are jazzed to be back this season to talk about some more exciting topics. Evan and I have been using our break to dig deep into several topics. Some of them are kind of heavy, like this one, which is why we're going to jump straight into this. So for our season two premiere, we wanted to kind of get back to our roots a little bit. We looked at our season one premiere about Nazi ideology on the internet, how it's perpetuated and how it's been bleeding into the real world. And when we did our last episode about Nazis, it was in the wake of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. It felt like this moment where a lot of Nazis, white supremacist groups were all coming out of the woodwork and like announcing that they were here and that they really wanted to influence policy. And it felt like we were a little bit late to the party. We kind of missed the boat a little bit. Like, we had a lot to say about them, but they, you know, they revealed themselves already. They revealed their hand. And in the year since, it seems as if, no, actually, we didn't miss the boat on this one. It seems as if people haven't fully taken seriously the influence that these white supremacist groups have on the alt-right and how really fundamental they are to it.
1: If our concern was we missed the boat on outing Nazis, oh boy, there are many boats coming.
0: Yeah, it's a little, uh, it's a little disconcerting. I yeah. wish we had missed the boat. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, the past year has witnessed a real growth in specifically like real world fascism and Nazism in the public realm, not even just in the United States, but also worldwide, which I think goes to show that we were definitely right to discuss it even a year back. But I think it's becoming even more important that we discuss the reality of this of the
0: situation. Yeah, what we've noticed in the past year, or really more is that the alt-right is being used as a device to mainstream Nazi white supremacist talking points that previously really just existed online or in isolated communities. And doing so with the end goal of affecting actual policy, actually gaining political government power. And a concern of mine is that when people hear us or other people talking about Nazis, there's this instinctive reaction to think, "Okay, well, you're being dramatic. Like everybody calls people they disagree with politically Nazis. And I would like to really, really hit this hard immediately out of the gate. We are talking about literal neo-Nazi groups here.
2: America was, until this past generation, a white country, designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation, it is our inheritance, and it belongs to us. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. We don't exploit other groups. We don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around. The mainstream media, or perhaps we should refer to them in the original German, Lügenpresse. It's not just that they are leftist and cucks. Indeed, one wonders if these people are people at all. or instead soulless golem. The press has clearly decided to double down and wage war against the legitimacy of Trump and the continued existence of white America. But they are really opening up the door for us. Within the very blood in our veins as children of the sun lies the potential for greatness. That is the great struggle we are called to. We are not meant to live in shame and weakness and disgrace. We were not meant to beg for moral validation from some of the most despicable creatures to ever populate the planet. We were meant to overcome, overcome all of it, because that is natural and normal for us. Hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory.
0: There is literally so much to unpack in that little segment we could spend the next hour talking about all the little subtle dog whistles and things, even for such a overtly Nazi piece of rhetoric. But we have much broader, more general fish to fry. Anyway, that man that we just heard was out-and-proud neo-Nazi and white supremacist Richard Spencer. He is the head of the National Policy Institute, which is a white supremacist organization. But you probably know him best as that Nazi that got punched in the face in that viral video that was making the rounds for a while. But most important is that he is one of the main organizers of the Unite the Right rally. And Richard Spencer is not only sort of the ideological
1: founding father, but also the man who coined the term the alt-right. The website where he discussed his ideas and his political concepts was named AlternativeRight.com.
2: Experiencing the 9-11 era, and I became extremely skeptical of that whole flag-waving period, let's all hold hands in order to save America. I knew that we had to get away from the conservative movement. By about mid-2008, I was using this term alternative right or alt-right. The alt-right has existed long before Trump. Trump definitely energized the alt-right. He was elected because of the immigration issue, which is fundamentally an identity and race issue, let's be honest. Because we have this connection with them, we can inflect
0: his policies and typically when you bring up guys like richard spencer it's very easy to say well you know you're focusing on a few bad actors you're trying to paint an entire movement with a very broad brush that's unfair of you like talking about nazis it's just clickbaity but in the wake of charlottesville i think that 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 doesn't really work as an argument i can understand the desire to want to see the best in people but and conceptually we've like literally demonized
1: nazis for so long It's difficult to imagine anybody in the real world being that, you know, like we've had so many video games and movies and bits of pop culture where Nazis are vampires or demons or robots or zombies to the point that I think it's it's become sort of clownish.
0: Right. It's hard to imagine a real person is a Nazi
1: or it's 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 specifically a historical phenomenon like it only existed in Germany in, you know the 30s and 40s like it that's not a modern
0: thing that can happen. And for me personally, I'm at the point where looking at the alt-right as far as leadership goes, I don't know who's not a white supremacist. I know that sounds really extreme, but extreme but true. <laughs> like if if there are people who are not, they're they're essentially irrelevant. And I say that because their voices are not the ones that are being emphasized, they're not the ones who are leading people.
1: Yeah, I I mean, when you actually watch videos of Charlottesville or look at reporting on Charlottesville, their invisibility is telling.
0: And let's jump back for a second because I want to talk about Charlottesville some more. The Unite the Right rally was portrayed as an attempt to find all of these different disparate conservative groups that, you know, the Republican Party was extremely fractured. At this time, it felt like there was no real singular leadership that everybody was following. And this was arguably an attempt to really try to unify everybody under a new alt-right banner. We're going to rejuvenate, breathe new life into American conservatism. That's a great narrative. That's a narrative they wanted to push. But if you look at the actual speakers and organizers, you've got people like Richard Spencer. You've got guys like Nathan D'Amigo, who had Identity Europa, which is a neo-Nazi organization. Who, by the way, did time in prison for robbing a man at gunpoint because he looked Iraqi. Charming man. You've got David Duke, also known as the former Grand Wizard of the KKK. And there's others. We're not going to inundate you with names. We're going to have a document available for everybody to look at. Wherever you're listening to this episode, we're going to include it in the description so you can have access to it and kind of see what we're working off of. And we do this for accountability. Like, a lot of people have been saying, uh, post-Charlottesville, like, yes, there were white supremacists, there were neo-Nazis, KKK guys there, but... They represent a minority. Fortunately for us, we live in the age of streaming, of social media, and a lot of these neo-Nazi guys, they have to evangelize online. So these guys are always going to post online anything that makes them look powerful, anything that promotes solidarity, and we as observers can just go find live streams that they were posting all day. There were several of them from inside the rally. We can see exactly what was going on in
1: there. Yeah, everybody was a camera to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, no, we have an unobstructed view inside, and a lot of them in the past year have been taken down because they reflect extremely poorly on the image that the alt-right wants to create, but thankfully there's lots of people who will watch these things live, they'll save them, and they'll distribute them for the sake of saying, look, this is what these people say behind closed doors when they think nobody's watching. So just as an interesting little exercise, I would like to talk about some of these symbols and iconography that are visible just all over these streams. Oh, yeah, let's, let's discuss this. There are flags, t-shirts, shields depicting the Black Sun, which is, imagine, like, four swastikas, like, all layered on top of each other.
1: Yeah, it was a Nazi occult symbol, which uh, featured prominently in the Eagle's Nest, which was Hitler's hideout in the Alps. You have flags of the United States
0: National Socialist Movement. The American Nazi Party. (laughs) Literally. And you've got a lot of crusader imagery, a lot of iron crosses, uh, Nordic runes. Yeah, I mean, Norse runes figure
1: heavily in both sort of the occult and sort of Aryan, sort of Germanic mythic roots of the Nazi Party. Uh, Is it the Odin's rune, which is sort of looks
0: like an eight if you chop the bottom half of it? off yeah and that's what the u.s national socialists use as their symbol yeah also there was the the apartheid flag of rhodesia is something you could find oh wow deep cut there some yeah deep cut. rhodesia being the
1: sort of pre-colonial and apartheid government variety of zimbabwe the the country in africa i mean it was a it was a british colonial possession it was ruled by whites in a similar manner to south africa and another thing is that i mean uh, we're talking about a lot of this sort of tongue-in-cheek Nazi-adjacent uh, symbols. There are also swastika flags. Like, I mean, there, there are actual, like, just straight-up
0: swastikas. Yeah, which sort of gets to the point that we're making here, which is that these were not just casual white supremacist, casual neo-Nazis. And as further evidence of that, you have in attendance the Daily Stormer. They had a giant banner. For those of you who don't know, the Daily Stormer is an unabashedly white supremacist neo-Nazi yeah. media outlet. It gets its name from a Nazi publication. Der Stürmer. And that one I'd like to focus on because around that banner you can see there's a massive crowd. I'd say at least maybe 200 something people.
1: Yeah, and that's only
0: what you can actually see on the video because you can only see half of the crowd. And there is a particular quote that I would like to focus on from these people because it is terrifying and chilling to me. Like, let's just play it. If you have trouble understanding what he was saying there, uh, among other things, he says this is the first precept of the true alt right: gas the slur for Jews, race war now, and the crowd. Everybody starts chanting: the gas thing. the Jews, <laughs> race war now.
1: Right. So it's not. It's not like that. Speaker was the outlier amongst that crowd. He was the demagogue of the crowd, and the crowd was following his, you know, lead. The call and response is
0: basically what it all was. And the reason so much of our attention is being put on this at the top of the episode is because my concern is that people just aren't taking this seriously enough. Because this isn't just about dorks in suits chanting, Hitler did nothing wrong for laughs or whatever. Like, this is having real-world ramifications. Like, if you remember, one of the self-proclaimed neo-Nazis at the rally murdered a woman with his car. He's in prison now for second-degree murder. And he injured 19 others. So we would like to break down why and how and to what end so far the alt-right has done these things. And it's really important for both of us to say we are not doing this to dunk on conservatives. Like, full disclosure, I voted for President of the United States Jill Stein. This was my protest vote. And Jill Stein, it turns out, is most likely somehow associated with Russia in an attempt to try to undermine American democracy, one way or another. And I am saying it on the airwaves here that I'm willing to admit I was, I was had, I was suckered in by that. I don't regret voting third party, though. That's a whole other conversation. But my point is that we're all in this together. Yeah. We're in the middle of of a lot of weird, disturbing ways that people are trying to utilize the internet, manipulate the systems that we have that are invisible to us to try to influence us and manipulate us. So what I want to do is for us all to join hands. This is something we're going to do throughout the podcast. All of us to join hands, say you know what? None of us are impervious to this. Sometimes we're going to have allies we have to purge because they are bad for us. They actually don't have our best interests in mind. And we do not want to be associated with people who are going to do things like that and abuse us those ways.
1: Yeah, you have to know when to cut your losses. I mean, David has a very concrete example of when he's been had. As far as I know, I've never been had. No, I mean, here's the thing, like, it's comfortable to sort of lull yourself into the assumption that the decision that I made or an attitude that I held was always justified. And I think our goal here is not to blame anybody, aside from maybe the Nazis but rather to raise awareness and to build solidarity across basically the entire electorate who say, yeah, fascism is bad, Nazism is bad, and that is not something that the U.S. will tolerate.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's very easy to make excuses or try to minimize kind of what uh, these people are doing, and I think that we do so at the peril of legitimizing them or saying that we are tacitly endorsing you, and I don't think, I hope none of us want that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's easy in the short term to ignore the oncoming sort of catastrophe that would be enabling Nazis. Uh, We fought an entire war to defeat that. We worked with communists who, you know, the US, we've not been particularly fond of communists, but we recognize that fascism is a far more destructive and insidious thing. And you have to basically work with people that you disagree with uh, on politics and on policy to recognize that, There are evils out there. There are evil ideas and there are evil people. And that evil needs to be stopped and it requires everybody working together to do so.
0: Yeah, it's an ideology that is already inspiring violence and murder like today in the year 2018. They seek friends in the mainstream who can view them as kindred spirits or allies and then cover for them. And just doing the appropriate research for this episode is emotionally draining, mentally exhausting, because it is just wading through the most hateful, vile rhetoric that I've ever come across.
2: Speech. No, of course not.
3: Every time we have liberty, openness, the open society, it always comes at the cost of us, and we know who that is, white folks. Black lives splatter! Black lives splatter! Black lives splatter! Black lives splatter! Look, look, the violence, violence is only coming from the left. It's not coming from the right. It's absolutely ridiculous. I want to go over there and instigate it, but the cops are here, so it will be nice. People are badly hurt. Oh, my God, badly hurt.
4: I drove into people, causing a multi-chain accident. I cannot
3: recommend violence enough. Like it is a really effective way to solve problems.
2: No one will honor us for losing gracefully. I knew that we had to get away from the conservative movement. You're fucking
3: losers. Your movement's done.
2: I was using this term, alternative right
3: or alt-right. You have no movement. This is the fucking movement. Either get on board or get the fuck out of the way.
1: Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like.
3: You're yes,
2: yes, outnumbered. Yes,
3: yes, In some parts of the country, it does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore.
0: If that montage was at all alarming or confusing, we are going to spend the rest of the episode breaking down everything that you just got a little taste of and more, and providing some context for what the heck is even going on here. So let's start with the thousand-foot perspective. Let's start really broad. So in this conversation,
1: and I think any conversation where you want to be arguing in good faith, you want to have an honest conversation, defining terms is really important. I think a huge amount of disagreement on anything comes down to two people have a different conceptualization of a concept or a term. So let's define some of these terms. When we talk about neo-Nazis or we talk about Nazis, what do we mean? Well, you can talk about classical Nazis literally being the National Socialists of Germany, but in an American and a modern context, we're generally talking about a fascist ideology that looks specifically towards white supremacism as its basis for its national character. So America being, uh, or I guess in Germany, if you're talking about skinheads and neo-Nazis in Western Europe, white people being the most important element of your country uh, to the exclusion of everybody else. So to black people, to Muslims, to Latinos, to anybody who is not a Western European person.
0: And to be white in their minds, it relies on some kind of very strong European or even sometimes imagined European heritage. So, for example, like religion has nothing to do with whether you're white or not, but for these groups, if you are a white person who practices Islam, you're practicing a culture that is from another race. Therefore, it is inferior culture. And to the outside world, I mean, I think that most of us understand that religion and race, these things are separate. And these white supremacist groups know that, so they tend to couch their racial bigotry in a language of uh, religious bigotry, I suppose. Which really poisons the well for anyone who's trying to have an honest, critical examination of religion and culture and things like that.
1: And... We also have to consider sort of elements of Nazi ideology that have to do with anti-Semitism and global conspiracy theories about the power of uh, Judaism, specifically in, you know, uh, media and uh, economics and all these different realms. Basically, any place that a Nazi might find power outside of their own party is clandestinely controlled by Jews uh, in the conspiracy theory. So that's what we might mean by people who we're talking about as Nazis. Now, outside of that, Nazism fits into a larger idea about fascisms. And I use the plural term fascisms, uh, sort of. Yeah,
0: I was uh, going to ask about
1: that. Yeah, because Robert Paxton uses the term fascisms. Robert Paxton wrote The Anatomy of Fascism. If you have listened to our first episode, I refer to him a lot. He's a really good thinker. Robert Paxton talks about fascisms because fascism in no two countries looks the same or has all the same characteristics. I want to read Paxton's definition because I think it's going to be really instructive for us going forward. And also, I think it's instructive for our daily lives and specifically in the political climate because I, I see people misusing the concept so often. Yeah. So Paxton defines fascism as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants, working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites, abandons democratic liberties, and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints, goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. So in the first episode, talking about Nazis, I discussed that fascism a lot of times can be boiled down to one concept, which is the idea that your national unit or a particular basis for your country is more important than anything else. And all other ideology is subservient to it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, racial. You know, racism isn't necessarily the basis for all fascisms. Religion can be a basis for a e- type of fascism, uh, or an ethnicity can be. So, I mean, it, it, you can mold this into a lot of different ways. If you look at the fascism of Italy, it's going to be different from Nazi Germany. And it's going to be different from modern fascisms like Narendra Modi's India or Rodrigo Duterte's The Philippines. The enemies are different, concerns are different, the good guys are different. And ultimately, as Professor Jason Stanley in his book How Fascism Works, it ultimately comes down to a politics of us versus them, and the us is a national and ethnic and religious identity against another set of national, religious, or ethnic identities. But ultimately, fascism is about manipulating people into supporting you and getting you into power. I mean, Nazis and Italian fascists constantly manipulate ideology to get people on board with them. Ultimately, ideology, as A. Bertelle says, is ultimately just a tool of gaining power. And it's used to get people excited, and it's a talking point, essentially. It is a piece of propaganda.
0: Sorry, sorry. So the fascist ideology is just propaganda? Ideology is just propaganda,
1: if that ideology doesn't fit within the general program of increasing the power of an ethnic, religious, or racial group. So... In historical fascism, if we're talking about Italy and we're talking about Nazi Germany, you can see all kinds of Marxist language and Marxist ideology being espoused both by the Italian fascists and by the National Socialist Workers' Party. It's no accident that the Nazi party was the NSDAP, the National Social Workers' Party, because it sounds egalitarian, it sounds Marxist, and it has an appeal to workers, right? Right. Right. At th- this was a period in history where Marxism and sort of economic egalitarianism was on the rise. And those sorts of appeals had a powerful valence for the electorate in the respective countries.
0: There was actually a socialist wing of the Nazi party, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, briefly. I mean, the Nazi party over time slowly sloughed off the less useful elements of its party. So you had a lot of sort of nationalist lefties in the party who were like, oh, yeah, we need greater public programs. But there's also a strong element of anti-Semitism to it at the same time. But those groups became less important when the Nazis actually needed to court groups that were in power, including the nobility, including business magnates and the military. And slowly their focus in their party went from populist appeals that Had to do with a lot of left-wing language to embracing business types, the military, these noble sort of aristocratic individuals. And by the time that Hitler comes to power in 33, really the Nazi party had gotten rid of a lot of the elements of its party that you could probably legitimately consider to be Marxists.
0: And many of them were removed by murdering them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's another element of fascism, right? Uh, And of course, Nazism is that it has no problem with violence. And in fact, violence is this pure and honorable, to a certain extent, expression of manliness and of national purity and also of Colty's fascination with action and with the power of the will and things like that, that the most powerful people can make their will a physical reality. And in real life, if you're in a democratic system, and this is why fascists hate democracy, because democracy, by definition, requires compromise. And fascists hate that idea because that means that your will is being uh, corrupted by other people's will.
0: Yeah, we just wanted to specify that because... You know, we, we want to make it clear we're not just using heightened language. We are talking about something very specific, but also we don't want to encourage people to go out and start accusing, you know, every instance of inequality of being Nazis or white supremacists or something like these are very specific terms. We really don't want them to be used incorrectly because we are talking about something very specific here. So, what does any of this look like today? We talked about in our last episode that a lot of this starts online. Something we brought up in our last Nazi episode is that the internet makes it really easy to find people anonymously. You can admit to certain ideological preferences that are not acceptable in wider, polite society, and you can not only admit them and find other people who believe in them, but you can actually bond and form communities based on them. And you can even, as an individual, make that the core of your identity online. So one of the benefits of living in a society under constant surveillance is that we get to take advantage of that for stuff like this. The catch-22 for these Nazi and white supremacist groups is that they need to find new recruits. And that means that, to a large extent, a lot of what they do has to be done in public. And that also means that there tends to be a paper trail that we can follow. So we mentioned that live stream videos are really popular in our opening. In addition to that, there's also social media platforms like Gab, which was essentially the alt-right answer to Twitter. A lot of alt-right leaders, members felt that they were either being directly censored by Twitter or just not being valued or listened to on the platform. So Gab was created as a safe haven for all free speech. And it turned out that The people going to Gab, who really felt that their ideas were not being valued, overwhelmingly just used the platform to share neo-Nazi memes and images of gore and pornography. Gab has actually been having a really hard time staying alive. Like, PayPal and Stripe don't want to process payments for their website because they identify a lot of stuff there as illegal or hate speech. Plus, you compound that with the fact that, like, the Pittsburgh shooter the other week announced his plans on Gab. So, like, legally, they're in a lot of hot water. But, I mean, this... You go to Gab. I signed up for Gab. I spent literally no more than maybe 20 minutes on the website. If within, I'll say, 60 seconds of signing up for the website, you're not greeted by some kind of Nazi memes and white supremacist sentiments, I'll give you 20 bucks. You can go anywhere, the news section, philosophy, faith, finance, humor. Wherever you go, you're going to be finding just neo-Nazi white supremacist stuff everywhere you look. You cannot avoid it. It's just, it's a cesspool website. There's no discretion. People just let it all hang out. And what they're letting hang out is just the worst. Along these lines, there's also platforms that were adopted by neo-Nazis like Discord. Yeah. I mean,
1: Discord isn't exclusively a Nazi and fascist rallying platform, but I mean, they
0: use it. Discord was a platform originally created to talk about video games, not white supremacy. Right. But the video game community has revealed itself to be a pretty fertile place to look for new recruits because it's a community that has historically been kind of more exclusive for nerdy white guys. And there's a lot of people who still see it as being a place for them. Yeah. It's not exclusively that, but I mean, there's a lot of them. It's absolutely not a community that's exclusive to white guys, but there was a point when it predominantly was, and there's a lot of people who are still in it who believe that it should remain that way. Right. And Discord has been having a really hard time with this because they keep purging neo-Nazi white supremacist groups on their platform, and they just keep coming back Mm -hmm. and coming back. And as we've been seeing, if you're looking for them, they're really not subtle. So here's a few examples of some Discord servers. You've got Rotten Reich, which claims to be the best neo-Nazi server that is currently recruiting. So they're recruiting. They're actively promoting that they're looking for new members to join. So I'm going to read some excerpts here just to show you the kind of things that they're saying. I'm going to censor this because it's awful.
1: Yeah, um, well, I'll I'll provide a little beep sound.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to oh. censor it myself. I'm, I just won't say it. Darn. These kind of servers will have rules like no Jews. Also, no Muslims, no atheists. Like we said earlier, there's a sort of cultural component that goes along with being white. They also say no N-words. And if you're one of these, you might as well leave because you'll be kicked out anyway. And no disrespecting any of the fascist champions. So saying Hitler was a coward who shot himself is unacceptable and will get you banned. We're okay with non-fascists who are willing to learn, but if you're here to counter-signal, you're not welcome here. It also says no slur for gay people. You might notice that there's a definite double standard about this free speech thing that when it comes to spaces for them, neo-Nazis and white supremacists really love having safe spaces where nobody's going to criticize them, where only people of certain races are allowed, like all this stuff. So there's definite uh, a double standard going on here. They're super hypocritical. And you've got other parts where people talk about wanting to exterminate and slaughter Muslims and stuff and... I don't, you know I don't want to, I don't actually want to read any of this.
1: <laughs> it's all it's all a lot of awful stuff. David printed out like a list of like just a bunch of things, and it's all just so awful that David doesn't actually want to
0: read you no, know, I it gathered because, all this stuff uh, but...
1: the, the the tongue pollutes the heart. yeah, there you
0: go. <laughs> you know, the reason I wanted to read this stuff at all was just because i I wanted to have a very unflinching look at at what these people are talking about. I guess I am flinching. but. If you want to read more about this stuff, there's a lot in the Google Doc uh, if you just search for this section. But I also just wanted to point out that even on a platform designed for video games, video game communities, you'll find very just blatant Nazi propaganda and recruitment going on here. And to really hammer this home, some really popular paths of indoctrination and recruitment are targeting kids within video games themselves. And I mean video games like Minecraft and Fortnite. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff by a guy named Christian Picciolini, who's a former white supremacist leader. He used to be the leader of the Chicago area skinheads among, I believe, some a few other groups. He's written a few books and, and articles and things about his experiences as a leader in the group and how he got out. And he also provides a lot of inside looks into how they operate, how they plan But the goal is to find and prey on, literally, children, anybody who's the most vulnerable. So sometimes this might mean going to forums on video game websites, but designed for depression or mental health discussions. Because they're looking for young, impressionable minds, people who are reaching out. Clearly, they need to be listened to. They need somebody to care for them. Uh, Basically, like a a familial kind of relationship, somebody who they can trust. And this is a great opportunity for a white supremacist group to work in their explanations for the way the world works, why these kids feel the way that they do, all the typical white supremacist scapegoating. Also, before we move on, a few other places that are really popular destinations for white supremacists online, the politics board on 4chan, 8chan, which uh, we talked about in our last episode a little bit. On Reddit, you've got the Donald subreddit, which began as a subreddit about Donald Trump supporting him. There's also this really massive trend on like YouTube of these uh, what what they call alt light speakers. You get these people who kind of offer these watered down versions of alt right talking points. They tend to just revolve around these like conspiracies about how the social justice warriors are ruining everything. Like they're conspiracy level type of videos. Here's a clip from one of the most popular of these channels, Millennial Woes. Women shouldn't have the vote.
2: Because if you do give them the vote, they will mess up your
0: psychological defenses and your legal systems, your protocols, your culture, and make it vulnerable. They provide a very convenient narrative for any kind of disaffected young man, young white man in particular, who believes that the world is increasingly rejecting them, because in a certain way, that is true. Like, as globalism brings people together, guys, and white guys in particular, are losing a lot of the privileges and status that I think that they're used to or that they are expecting in life. And rather than seeing this entire process as equalizing, they're seeing it as themselves being victimized. This is why the idea of triggering the libs is so important to a lot of these people because it's a way of lashing out and striking back. They believe that they've been slighted first. So as democracy starts to flourish in some new way, that is an opportunity for a fascist movement to come and push back and say, we are the cure for this unprecedented new change in the culture. Let us fix it. And in the internet era, their methods of, in quotes, fixing society range from terrifying to criminal. So probably a necessary piece of vocabulary that everybody should know going into this are Ops. Ops being short for operations. And ops are not exclusive to white supremacist groups, but they've adopted, it's a more general language of people who want to perform a kind of demonstration out in public or online. With these groups, they tend to be harassment campaigns or doxing campaigns. Doxing being where you find people's personal information, where they live, where they work, who their family members are, their telephone numbers, their email address. And you make that information public and just kind of sick the mob on them so they can be harassed from absolutely every avenue both on the internet and in real life. Yeah, and when we say harassment, this always includes death threats. If there's a woman, it'll be rape threats. Um, you know, talk about family members, like legitimate threats of violence, really, which all serves as a silencing tactic, silencing their opponents.
1: It is. It is a silencing uh, tactic, silencing through fear of
0: violence, really. And it does double duty of just heightening the rhetoric in general they want to try to goad their enemies into silencing them violently if possible they would love nothing more than to appear like the rational victims even while advocating for literal ethnic cleansing genocide i've lost count of all of the white supremacists that have committed mass murders in the past year or so even in the past week and doing so in the name of freedom and liberation
1: i mean this whole issue of free speech has been a tool of fascism before There is a propaganda Nazi propaganda poster from 1928 that literally shows Hitler with tape over his mouth. So the concept of Nazis are being silenced is one that goes all the way back to the origins of this train of thought.
0: Yeah, the basic formula for this stuff is whoever has to say something hateful, potentially violent, those people can do it anonymously or it can be done by a small random person so that the movement as a whole, when they're held accountable, can just say, I disavow. And they can use the idea of free speech as a smokescreen, that whenever anybody criticizes them, says that what they're saying should be considered violent, this is a free speech issue, and that they're they're just trying to defend the First Amendment. And isn't that beautiful? Of course, it's all a lie, and we've got a clip here of Richard Spencer outlining exactly what he believes about free speech on a stream for his followers. As far as government regulation,
2: I mean, yes, I think in the short term, we would favor government regulation of speech. But long term, uh, are we even pro-free speech? No, of course not. But we have to use this platform— in order. So we're being radically honest here. And, yes, radically
1: yeah. pragmatic. Yes. So in this clip, we hear Gregory Conti, Richard Spencer's co host, ask him, Are we even free speech? And Spencer says, No, of course not. But we have to use this platform. And he stops and Conti asks him, So we're being radically honest here. And he says, Yes, radically pragmatic. This fits into a larger concept of fascism that says that ultimately, Fascists hate democratic institutions and democratic concepts like free speech, but they recognize ideology and things like free speech can be tools for gaining power. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the game's goal is to gain power, and fascists are willing to use any tool that they have that. Democracy provides them, though they are not limited to democratic norms. And in fact, they will work and use democratic institutions to undermine those norms, like free speech, which is why we say fascists use the concept of free speech as a convenient cloak for their ideas. But ultimately, they would like to use that as a tool to actually destroy free speech and to basically have... enfranchisement of their speech over others
0: right and couple this with the fact that these guys organize they operate online i am not afraid to go out on a limb and say that the nazis understand the internet and its role in society way better than most people listening to this right now
1: right they have
0: to it's a matter of survival for them and the most important part about this is that they understand that the internet is at its core an attention economy It doesn't matter how much political power you have. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you can't convert that into eyeballs on a screen, you are irrelevant. This is something we go into detail in our Syrian war episode. So mastering this attention economy online is their primary way of gaining authority. As long as they have your attention, they have a semblance of legitimacy. This is why you have alt-right figures like Milo Yiannopoulos going out and threaten to harass people, dox people, send online mobs after people. And the attention that he generates makes him newsworthy. It makes him an international figure. And if anybody tries to hold him accountable in the real world, he can always fall back on, it was a joke, I, I can't believe you took that seriously or I can't control what people who, like me, do after they listen to me. But worst of all is that they've gotten their message into the mainstream. A really popular tactic is to spread conspiracy theories that may at first get attention because they are ridiculous, but over time they get repeated enough They become indistinguishable from actual news, and when that happens, it enters into the political realm. We have actual politicians spreading conspiracy theories. We'll get into those in more detail in a moment. So in spite of the fact that they began as a movement with very little support, they've been able to figure out how to hijack, if you will, the system we have in place better than anybody else has, and take advantage of our assumptions that things that are newsworthy or discussed a lot must have value.
1: And even on top of that, because you're claiming the mantle of free speech in that situation, whether or not that is true or not, you end up building popular outcry, right? So people who aren't on the alt-right, people who aren't fascists will say, "Hey, you are censoring this guy. That's bad." And now you have more people listening to you or willing to listen to you because they're sympathetic to the problems that you've experienced. But at the same time, I think we have to mention, uh, Dr. Eddie Glaudi Jr. has talked about this. He's a professor at Princeton, that a lot of times the issues of free speech on campuses is overblown a lot of time. These are sensational stories that will hit the headlines of the media saying like, hey, Milo has been run out of Berkeley or... Ex-speaker has not been allowed to go to a college or has been disinvited. Glaudi mentions that those are the outliers, in effect, that universities have a huge range of different people on the political spectrum speaking at them and presenting ideas. But what ends up happening is that for these particular members of the alt-right, like Amilo Iannopoulos, he's going to get more eyeballs and more outrage surrounding him because of the way he presents himself. And ultimately, that's his industry, right? It's an outrage industry. He, he's getting people to look at him, and that's how he makes money, because that's how you get attention.
0: Yeah, and there are two other uh, aspects of this methodology. One is, if you can't get your signal boosted by the media, do it yourself. There are literal armies of bots online that are created just to prop up hashtags on social media, like All Lives Matter or White Genocide. And we've talked about in our Robot Church Episode, How stupid algorithms are they take this as evidence of a legitimate popular movement that deserves more attention and then couple that with methods to destroy the signal of the people that you want to silence like I believe it was black lives matter that You had all these Nazi groups and Nazi bots that were spamming that hashtag with images of porn and like decapitated heads like a- anything that clearly violated terms of service for different social media platforms and so the algorithm at like Twitter or whatever sees this stuff and decides, oh, Black Lives Matter is a group that's devoted to spreading porn and gore out in the world. We have to shut them down, even though obviously this has nothing to do with the actual people who are involved with Black Lives Matter. Right. And what this leads into is how the alt-right is really, really good at predicting how people are going to respond to everything that they do and using that to try to play their opponents and getting them to behave a certain way that they can capitalize off of. So one example is symbols and iconography. They will craft and adopt symbols designed in such a way that when people call them out on it or notice, the people calling them out look crazy. So a popular example of this recently is, real quick, uh, put your hand up, make an OK symbol, you know, put your pointer fingers to your thumb, make a big O, your other three fingers waggling up top, You say, okay. Sorry to trick you, but I just got you to do a white supremacist symbol. Sorry, I don't know if you know, but they took it. The three fingers on the top look like a W, and the the round part connected to your arm there looks like a P. WP, white power. It's theirs now. Won't they co-opt? And uh, if this sounds absolutely ridiculous to you, that's on purpose. Like a lot of this stuff, we can trace it back to its origin. This whole thing started on 4chan years ago as an op for explicitly this kind of purpose. Let me tell you how it works. At the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, for example, White House assistant Zena Bash got a text in the middle of the hearing. She was seated right behind Brett Kavanaugh. After getting the text, she immediately made the OK slash white power symbol, rested it neatly on her elbow so that the camera could see, And, you know, kept going okay in the back. Like, she did everything she could to make this symbol again and again for the camera. It was very unnatural. Now, this was being done live, so people like me started jumping on this saying, that is not a natural way to put your hand. There's no reason for her to be making the okay symbol. The only other option that we could tell is that she was doing this as a white supremacist gesture. Why is a White House aide doing this symbol at a Supreme Court hearing? And many people immediately jumped to the conclusion that, She was herself a white supremacist, trying to signal to her base. And, of course, the reaction from reasonable people was, What the heck are you talking about? The OK symbol is a completely benign gesture to do. You people are seeing racism and Nazis everywhere. You're crazy. Now, is Xena Bash a white supremacist? I don't know. I kind of think it doesn't really matter for this conversation. What appeared to happen is that she got a text that instructed her to do this symbol. For what reason, I don't know exactly, but I know that these symbols are chosen online in such a way that whoever notices them looks unhinged and to a moderate, reasonable person, they are unreasonable and to be feared. Like, I'm sure many of you were probably kind of getting weird vibes just from me bringing this up.
1: That that can manifest itself in all kinds of ways where y- at this point, like reality, uh, that's actually... a a topic that Jason Stanley brings up in how fascism works, which is that ultimately unreality is a sort of a, a useful tool for fascism and for Nazis, which is the ability to simultaneously do something and then disavow that action. Um, you, you can see this in, uh, in Russia with, uh, with Putin. If you listen to our Russia episode, Tim was talking about how the Russian government will hold a position and then deny it and then have one person say, yeah, that was the position that we held and then have that person fired and then con- continue to deny it while pursuing that policy. It ultimately has the effect of confusing outsiders and people who are trying to view things to the point where they become exhausted and it produces sort of a mental exhaustion from trying to parse out what's even going on.
0: Right, this is something called the wilderness of mirrors. That's something we talk about in that episode. It's so confused, what is truth, what is half-truth, what is a scheme to waste my time? While you're spending time and energy trying to be honest and fact-check, they're making strides towards their goal. It's infinitely more difficult to be correct than it is to lie. So these movements online can actually wage wars of attrition against their opponents using nothing but rhetoric. But this is what they want. They want us to get wrapped up in debates like this. And as with everything they do, it boosts their signal. Innocuous things boost their signal. This is why, if you ever wondered, why are all these white supremacists obsessed with this cartoon frog? This frog, Pepe the Frog, was just a meme. It was a really popular meme. They said, this is going to be ours now. This thing is already popular. If we can imbue it with our identity, anytime people share this, Unknowingly, this is going to somehow link back to us. It will be associated with us, and it will be indistinguishable, the normal people from our people. It will make our ranks appear stronger. It will incite debate over who is and who isn't a Nazi. It's going to create paranoia.
1: Again, it is, it is turning popular icons, ideas, ideologies— Into tools for fascist propaganda.
0: Yeah, and one thing we're seeing more and more of is these alt-right groups adopting the outrage call-out culture of the left and trying to twist it to serve their own means. So a recently really weird example of this is that James Gunn, the writer-director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, basically the second-in-command at Marvel Studios, was in a single day fired by Disney due to fan backlash over some really tasteless jokes that he had made on social media years ago. So Disney, trying to make sure they're on the good side of the public in light of the Fox merger and their ongoing monopolization of all media, decided to do the progressive thing and fire James Gunn immediately. The thing is, you start to investigate this at all, and this whole campaign to fire James Gunn comes back to a guy named Mike Cernovich. This is an important name. He's a very big alt-right guy who does this kind of stuff routinely to punish celebrities and media figures who criticize Donald Trump. The entire campaign to get James Gunn fired was never about being legitimately offended by old jokes that he had made. This was all an attempt to flex, punish a celebrity for going against what the alt-right wanted, and basically just show off and say, yeah. we know how to play the game, and we're going to do it yeah. better than you.
1: And, and Mike Sarovich does this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, there there are plenty of other people where... The literal exact same strategy was employed on them and to to various effects. Uh, Sometimes they will take those tweets out of context. But with James Gunn, it was a it was like a legit like this is kind of a weird joke to make. Um, But these are strategies that are tried and true in the alt-right to basically silence people. And
0: again, if you think that we are exaggerating about Mike Cernovich or we're projecting our interpretation of his motives onto him, we have a clip here from when he did this to a guy at CNN. Yeah. He decided to spread a false story that this reporter at CNN was doxing a kid in order to ruin his career.
3: I started that whole narrative that he was doxing people. The whole narrative. I got that going. I'm going to claim that you doxed an underage kid. Fuck you. Sue me. You know, like, I just don't give a fuck. I will do the nastiest hit articles out of anybody. Fuck K-File. I don't feel bad for what's happening to him. I'm glad it's happening to him. He deserves everything that's coming his way. K-File, you fake news fuck. Even if the person's not 15, that's the narrative now, so fuck you. You know, good luck. Nobody gives a fuck if that's true or not. That's the narrative. Nobody cares. That's going to become the social truth and the social construct. You're the guy who docs an underage boy. You'd like, well, he wasn't underage, She was like 20. Doesn't matter, bro. You lost control of the narrative. What would K-File be remembered for? Doxing a 15-year-old boy. Goddamn. You know, bringing down fucking 15-year-olds on Reddit. Shit. Holy fucking shit. That's your fucking legacy, bro. Nobody does a hit piece like I can do.
1: Guy, well,
0: Mike Cernovich is just the creepiest man ever. Mike Cernovich is so terrible. And he, some of the stuff he just does for attention, like, it, it sometimes it even gets hard to figure out what does he honestly believe? Yeah. about what, what, is, what is cosplay and what is, rea- you know, actual
1: attitudes? It's, it's hard to parse it.
0: At a certain point, though, it stops mattering who's who. Who is a sincere fascist? Who is taking advantage of a movement for the sake of their own career? Who is joining on because they think it's a good joke? Who is doing this because they don't actually believe that these people are real Nazis? So what's the big deal? And for the people who are not sincerely fascist, they still are taking on the appearance of a fascist. To an outside observer, these people all might as well be the exact same. And as we're finding out, the outside observers in this case are actual politicians and media figures who are trying to get a handle on who their young base is. Yeah.
1: I mean, these these guys function as basically business fronts to clean dirty money, except <laughs> the dirty money is fascist ideas. Uh, and the front cleaning it is they're inocuating uh, the ideas. That's,
0: r- that's right. In our last podcast about Nazis, we coined the term inoculation tm anderson brothers yeah we came up with the idea together yes inoculation is a conjugate of the word innocuous it's the opposite of inoculation so uh when you're inoculated you get a little bit of a disease and it kind of feeds your immune system and lets you build up a resistance towards it Whereas inoculation, you get a little bit of a bad idea, a bad ideology, but it's presented innocuously enough that you kind of ignore it, and it just kind of grows and festers inside until you. you. Until, yeah, one day you recognize you are yourself the disease, (laughs) and you say, I I embrace this. This is me now. (laughs) Yeah. So we can start to see how these ideologies and very explicit neo-Nazi talking points start showing up in conservative media. And I don't think that everybody who parrots one of these talking points is themselves a nazi but i do think that they are in danger of exposing themselves and their audience to this inoculation effect yeah and in these clips you're not going to experience the same kind of like visceral punch that you would with like a quote from richard spencer or from these unite the right rally guys Because everything gets softened, it gets massaged for a mainstream audience. But regardless, I still think it's important to listen to them and really recognize how what's going on here is basically Baby's first introduction to white supremacist rhetoric. I know that sounds extreme and alarmist, a lot of this stuff does, but like everything, we have brought our receipts, we want to show our work, and we're going to try to explain why we see what we see. Yeah. These are neo-Nazi talking points going back literally decades. So the first one we're going to talk about is one that's surprisingly prevalent. It's this idea that the left is trying to start a civil war, that they want to get a civil war going. This one's particularly popular with white supremacists because they have been itching for a do-over, basically, of the last civil war. They want a reinstitution of a white ethnostate. They want to revoke civil rights for anybody who's not white. And their shared fantasy is that the way of doing this is by provoking a brand new civil war, basically by whatever means necessary. This has ties going back to William Pierce's The Turner Diaries. This was a book that was really popular with white supremacists and anarchists. This was a book that inspired Timothy McVeigh, also known as the Oklahoma City Bomber. And in the modern day, what you're seeing is this myth being spread that the other side is going to initiate the civil war with the hope that this will stir up a lot of fear and anxiety and people will end up saying, don't let them, let's strike first. And then, ta-da,
4: prophecy fulfilled. This is something you see Tucker Carlson talk about. Activists on the left are moving toward violence. They are aware of this and some applaud it. The message of all this is clear. The left no longer considers its political opponents fellow citizens or even human. How long before they start openly calling for something bad to happen to those opponents? Because once you decide that the people who disagree with you are Nazis, everything is allowed. Why wouldn't you threaten them in restaurants or burn their houses down or who knows? This could very well end in tragedy. You start talking like this and you don't know where it's going to go. Some progressives seem to welcome all that. Quentin James, who's the head of a political action committee that supports Democrats, recently announced that those calling for calm are, quote, accomplices of the current administration. Accomplices? This is the language of total war. It's scary. It has no place in politics. We're heading towards something awful. The country badly needs them to cool the rhetoric and rein in the mob. No more Nazi talk on their TV channels. There's a point of no return, and we are approaching it. This is something you see Dinesh D'Souza talk about.
1: We cannot find any precedent for what is going on now in our lifetime. But I think we have to go all the way back to 1860. Think about it. An an outsider, a Republican, uh, comes in out of nowhere, wins a close election, and all hell breaks loose. Uh, and the Northern Democrats are also uh, going berserk. Some of them are calling for Lincoln to be assassinated, which happens later. The Southern Democrats are so unwilling to live with the Lincoln presidency. They're ready to break up the country. So all this craziness is going on around Lincoln. So it's an eerily similar parallel to what's going on now. And quite frankly, it's the same
0: party, the Democratic Party, that is the root of the that's the culprits here. If guys like Alex Jones, even Dennis Prager, Pat Buchanan, Eric Erickson. Now, again, I'm going to specify that I don't think that these people are themselves trying to start a civil war. What I think that they're doing is passing along a lot of rhetoric that they think just helps them politically. It paints the other side as hysterical. But the reason that these arguments were out there in the first place was to inspire people to start a civil war. There are a lot of people who are just waiting for this message to become adopted by the mainstream as an excuse for them to act. So this one's particularly terrifying for that reason, especially because... The left is not calling for a civil war. I mean, I'm sure you can find a few people who say some stuff, but in general, people do not like war. Maybe they mean Antifa,
1: which is already like a a fun scapegoat.
0: Yeah, and they do sometimes explicitly reference Antifa. But in all these instances, nobody ever says, look, this is the rhetoric of Antifa. They want a civil war. It's always this very interpretive. Well, look at what they did. Clearly, they want a civil war. I mean, we're trying to, to avoid doing stuff like that. Plus, who on the left is even courting Antifa anyway? Anyway, we'll talk to an Antifa guy sometime. Maybe they can clarify some of this stuff for us, but I don't Another popular one is about George Soros. If you don't know him, he's a very rich Jewish investor and philanthropist. He tends to give his money to a lot of liberal causes. He's also a Holocaust survivor. Right. But he is very old and he is very rich and he is Jewish, which means that for the past several decades... Anytime you hear people, conspiracy theorists, talk about how the Jews are secretly controlling everything, George Soros is the Jew in those instances. Like, he has been the face of this conspiracy theory for a long time. uh, Yeah, he's a literal whipping boy for them to exercise their anti-Semitic scapegoating. Right, and this is something that you see Donald Trump has been supporting a lot of conspiracy theories about George Soros. Rudy Giuliani, just the, the past week, wrote on social media that He thinks George Soros is the Antichrist. Again, we'll include some links to this stuff in the Google Doc. Another conspiracy theory is that the left is secretly engaging in white genocide. There is no ideological reason that people on the left want open borders or want to invite in refugees and immigrants. This is all a ploy to dilute white people's numbers all across the West and therefore eliminate them. And this one is startling to me that this is getting any kind
4: of mainstream attention, but You can see Tucker Carlson again. Former Bush campaign strategist and ABC News political analyst Matthew Dowd went further than that. He published an op-ed demanding that, quote, white male Christians vacate their positions of power for other people. He's not doing that himself, but he did not notably advocate for genocide. A Georgetown professor called Christine Fair did do that. She recently tweeted this, quote, Look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. All right, I
0: hope you all caught that one, because while that post was brutal, yes, what it is not is a declaration that we need genocide against white people. In that excerpt from Christine Fair, who, by the way, is white, she's not saying that we should kill anybody because they're white. Technically, she's not even saying that we should kill anyone. She's saying that people who justify a serial rapist deserve miserable deaths while they get laughed at. Like, that is brutal, but that is not anywhere close to a call for genocide. Saying it is is just straight-up fear-mongering. Anyway, on to the next thing. Here's a clip from Laura Ingram, who's repeating verbatim just an actual white supremacist belief, which is that countries in the West should be voting on whether or not they should allow in any kind of immigrant, any kind of demographic change.
1: Because in some parts of the country, it does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. From Virginia to California, we see stark examples of how radically, in some ways, the country has changed. Now, much of this is related to both illegal and, in some cases, legal immigration that, of course, progressives love.
0: This comes from the belief that it is the elites who are inviting in all of these non-white people, that if this was a truly democratic process and the people could speak for themselves, they would all understand that, no, we want to keep our nation pure. Now, that last part is not present when somebody like Laura Ingram says it, but that's really concerning for me because what other kind of conclusion are you expected to come to if you hear something like that?
1: I mean, it reflects a direction that their thinking is going in, right? So if you're starting to adopt those talking points, it means that now the ideas, views, and political positions that are heralded by Nazis and by fascists and by the alt-right are starting to percolate into the right in general and are starting to sort of like infest it.
0: Just in the past few weeks, we've started to see the fruit that's born out of this kind of rhetoric. We've got a, frankly, unhinged guy who's been mailing bombs to Democratic leaders and anybody who criticizes Donald Trump. We've got a synagogue attack, which is the deadliest attack on Jews in American history. Well,
1: I mean, there, there is a very real-world manifestation of all this Internet stuff and all the, the politics that we're talking about that can get a little conceptual at times, but let's talk real-world results. So, in the United States, Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, on July 15th, reported that there was a record number of Nazis, neo-Nazis, slash anti-Semites running for office in the United States. And here's the thing, Haaretz had a longer list. I called it because I looked into the backgrounds of all these people to determine whether or not these are, like, straight-up actual Nazis or sympathizers. The people that I'm listing off are actual fascists, and I will list them all because it is good to know the names and to put that scarlet letter on them. Or I guess the the scarlet swastika on them. John Fitzgerald, Republican in California's 11th district. Seth Grossman, Republican in New Jersey in the 2nd district. Arthur Jones, Republican in Illinois 3rd district. Steve King, Republican in Iowa's 4th district.
0: Yeah, Steve King, by the way, as one example, he says stuff like diversity is not our strength. Mixing cultures will not lead to a higher quality of life, but a lower one. Or, culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies.
1: And that—that that is, that is, I mean, that's going back to the 14 words, right? Like, the 14 words being that we must secure the existence of our people and the future for white children.
0: Yeah, they're always talking about white babies. We mentioned this in our last Nazi episode. Also, the Daily Stormer, the Gas the Jews Race War Now people, have called Steve King our guy. And basically an open white nationalist at this point. So... Real recognize real.
1: Yeah. And all, all these guys I'm listing off are, are like that. Russell Walker, a re- Republican running for North Carolina's State House 48th District, is on record as saying God is a white supremacist. Here are other people. Paul Nealon, Republican in Wisconsin's 1st District. Corey Stewart running for the Virginia Senate. Shiva Adurai, Republican running in Massachusetts Senate. So... There are a lot of these people, and these are people running for national office outside outside of Russell Walker, but I included him because he's such an extreme case. But not only are we seeing a rise in fascist politicians and Nazi politicians, but we're also seeing a rise in street action from fascists. And that's an important element of the fascist cocktail, right? It's not just about policy. And getting electoral victory is also about a physical and visceral violence that produces political outcomes that you want. The fascists in Italy had the black shirts. In Germany, the Nazis had brown shirts. These are street thugs that will basically beat up people that they don't like. Brownshirts were known for being murderers. They would kill, on one occasion, I think one fight, they murdered 30 members of the Communist Party. People who were, at that time, that period's Antifa. Violence is an integral part of fascism especially Nazism. And we are seeing that kind of violence, street violence, becoming ascendant again on the fascist side of the political spectrum in the United States, especially if we're looking at groups like the Proud Boys. Right, yes. And they're, and they're uniform too. Like they even go by uniform. They wear black polos with gold trim. And part of their induction ceremony, it's not only like you have to have members of the group beat you to a, like a pulp at one point, but also it ends with you have to have suffered injury in a fight for the cause, which, as the Southern Poverty Law Center points out, literally means that at some point they have to get into a fight and injure a member of Antifa. But here's the thing, Antifa isn't a homogenous group, so literally it just means they have to beat up a protester, a a left-wing or centrist protester at some point. Yeah, exactly. You also have in Portland, Patriot Prayer, which is another street violence group who work with the Proud Boys in fighting people. Back in June, you saw that there were some Patriot prayer guys arrested for celebrating violence, calling for murder, and for assaulting people that oppose them, Uh, these guys got off with a slap on the wrist. So, I mean, these, uh, these are people who are out there and are the foot soldiers for a fascist political project.
0: And these guys will intentionally try to instigate fights, even with protesters and Antifa people who aren't trying to fight them, so that they can play the victim for the media and get a lot of sympathy that way. And again, we know this stuff because these guys cannot stop streaming everything that they do.
3: It's not a huge gathering of Antifa on the other side, but uh, they are there. I don't know if things are going to get violent. There's a heavy police presence. You're outnumbered. Go cats. your I don't know if they're going to do anything, guys. I want to go over there and instigate it, but the cops are here, so we'll be nice. I want to fuck him up real bad No, you don't want, to, all right. they don't want to ask. They don't want to ask any questions What do you want? I knock you out I was just recording All I was doing was recording Yes, sir Officer, all I did was record. Officer, please. I didn't want to fight him. He just he got like this. I didn't know I didn't know what he was going to do. I was recording, sir, and then he kind of, he came at my face. He's like, "But well, "What's your problem?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm just recording." Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir.
0: So to clarify, in that clip, we've got one of the Proud Boys. He's kind of annoyed that Antifa isn't picking a fight with them, so he decides that He wants to try to instigate a fight. He waits for there to be no cops around, just kind of picks a guy out at random who's on his phone, goes up, starts beating him up. When the cops break him up, he claims that he's the victim, lies about what happened, and laughs about it. And his story is essentially repeated by Gavin McGinnis, who is the head of the Proud Boys in this interview here.
4: All of us got together. We went through the front door, but then they only let me in. So the guys who escorted me there were left to fight. And luckily, they're great fighters. So they fought back and two of them ended up in jail. But uh, overall, it was a really fun night. And I cannot recommend violence enough. It is a really effective way to solve problems.
1: Ultimately, we can trace these back, though, to fascist ideologies, right? So Joey Gibson, the guy who heads Patriot Prayer, basically called for violence and said that the stench-covered and liberal-occupied streets of Portland will be cleansed. Cleansed. Uh, this was on June 30th of this year. Cleansing and the language of purification are very sort are are TM fascist. Right, yeah. It, it has genocidal connotations to it. But this coincides with also a global turn to the far right specifically to fascism using paxton's definition i went through prominent world leaders i've created for you friends a a list of fascist world leaders so here's the list jair bolsonaro running in brazil as the prime minister This, this is a man who said that he loved the military dictatorship that uh, existed in Brazil from the 60s and the 80s. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro said to a female legislator once, "Uh, I would rape you, but you're too ugly. Uh, By the time of the release of this episode, I think the elections in Brazil will already have happened. If he is president, uh, I have no doubt that extrajudicial killings and the constitution of the country will definitely be in jeopardy. Because the country has, up until recently, been dominated by the uh, Workers' Party. They aren't socialists, but they adopt a lot of left-wing policies. And recently, there has been a right-wing reaction in Brazil to these policies in the form of judicial action. Courts are really important. That's why in the United States, there's been a lot of hubbub over everything that's been going on with both the Supreme Court, but also local district courts. In Brazil, the Previous president and the current president have both been jailed on corruption charges, and the corruption charges are incredibly flimsy. And specifically, Lula da Silva has not only been jailed, but he's been put in solitary confinement and is not allowed to speak to anyone. Lula da Silva was looking to win something like 60 to almost 70% of the electorate. He's incredibly popular. Now that he's out of the running, Jair Bolsonaro almost won the election outright in the first round. Brazil is a parliamentary system, so they have two elections if the first person doesn't win in the first round a 50% vote.
0: And this sounds like what we were talking about earlier, about how fascists don't need popular support in order to gain power. In this case, it sounds like Bolsonaro was able to Gain power essentially by taking advantage of the fact that his opposition was just removed. And you can guarantee that when people like this come into power, they really double down on it and make sure they don't let go. And this is a
1: facet of a lot of fascisms.
0: This is, this is a phenomenon around the world. Viktor Orban
1: in Hungary is, at this point, a dictator. Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, Narendra Modi in India, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, Vladimir Putin in Russia. And then outside of people who actually hold power currently, you have Marine Le Pen in France with her National Front Party, who almost won the election. If the current president of France's numbers keep sagging like they are, uh, Marine Le Pen might be president in a few years. There's also George Muthen in Germany, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. You also have powerful fascist parties in Italy, Greece, and Ukraine. Uh, This is a worldwide phenomenon, and it requires worldwide solidarity between people who are anti-fascist. Because guess what? The fascists are in solidarity with each other. Just like in the 30s and in the 20s and the 40s, fascist governments coalesced around each other because they recognized that their systems were sympathetic to one another. Now these people who are fascists are circling the wagons around one another because they recognize that their project is a
0: global one. And to reiterate what we said earlier... We're giving you all these names. We're giving you all these sound bites. We have a Google Doc included where you can check our claims. And this is because we want to be accountable. If you disagree with us, please reach out to us. Let us know. Please, please, please fact check us. But this is something that for me and Evan, it's really important to us and something that we'd love to open up a wider conversation about.
1: Don't dox us, though.
0: Don't dox us, but we'd love to hear from you. Sorry if this episode is especially heavy and not very fun. Yeah,
1: uh, sorry. Uh, Woo, season two.
0: Sort of as a final thought before we go into our break, a big thing that I hear people say online is that Nazis are going to argue with you in bad faith. They will lie to you and try to manipulate you. Therefore, don't talk to them. And to that I say, figure it out. I think that we need some number of people to talk to Nazis. And not only talk to Nazis, but challenge Nazis and white supremacists publicly in a forum that young people are going to see. Because a hardcore Nazi white supremacist, yes, they will lie to you. They will try to manipulate you. But there are a lot of people who are entering into this world who are sincerely questioning, why is a Nazi bad? And remember, some of these people may be 11 years old. They're not always going to be asking you these kind of questions to make you go nuts. Because they sincerely don't understand. And if our reaction every single time is to shout that you are just evil and you don't deserve to be talked to, in their mind, the Nazi is the reasonable person here. So there have to be people acting as ambassadors, I think. I I don't think this is possible any other way. Who should those people be? I don't know exactly, but I would say... People who are going to inherently have more respect among this community. That means, I think, white people, I think, white men in particular, I think, conservative white men in particular. The closer you are to their ideal, I think the easier time you'll have of trying to talk them out of this, like it, this is a community effort that will have to happen, a global effort, really.
1: You, there is no responsibility on any one individual to counter a fascist talking point or anything like that. But it is vital to all of us who don't want fascism to recognize that we need to get people who are willing to debate them and to show them for what they are, both on the internet but also in the public arena. Like, the whole the whole premise of the show is predicated on people don't know what's going on on in the internet, so we're going to inform you about it. We need to make sure that these kinds of discussions are happening for eyeballs that are not on Twitter, that are not jumping into the deep end of the internet. This is an invitation. It's not a... It, we aren't rebuking anybody, aside from the the fascists themselves. It is more an invitation to empower people who feel like this is a bad thing, that, you know, we've... Fascism has been ascendant before... And we beat it. There's no, nothing to say that we can't beat it again in a less world-destructive manner.
0: This is a long one, David. This was very long. We've been at this for about three hours now. Yeah. This is going to be a lot of fun to edit all of this down to something people will listen to.
1: <laughs> I'm tense. I'm physically tense. My my stomach is I need churning. To decompress. Like, my I like I feel like I have a lot of adrenaline.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right.
1: I'm just going to stand up and, like, walk around for a <laughs> sec. Hold on.
0: All right, let, let's do a few proactive thoughts, Some something positive to end on. Because if, after listening to this stuff, you feel extremely depressed and anxious the way that we tend to... I think, first of all, find people who are not like you. Celebrate the world that these people are trying to destroy. Remember what its value is. Remember that it still exists even if they hate it, even if they're trying to tear it down. And you going out there celebrating that, strengthening that, is a revolutionary act. And uh, I'm going to say something for the white people, particularly the white liberals who listen to the show. If you are suddenly having the realization that there are systems of power, politically, socially, that are unjust, and you're seeing this as a symbol that this is the end of the world, please go talk to somebody who is a minority, racially, religiously, sexually, whatever it is, because they've known this for a while, and they have been doing the legwork for decades, centuries, uh, to combat this stuff. Take their lead, like legitimately make yourself a servant to a cause that's being championed by somebody who has been doing this longer than you.
1: I, I'm i not going to presume that I have the answer, that I have the formula, but I mean, I think awareness is a very important first step. Like, that's, that's the thing we were talking about this entire time, was that people just don't get that this is happening, or are willingly ignoring it, or just aren't, aren't, like, savvy enough. Like, like I said, most people don't get, like, how the internet works or what people are using the internet for. Most people aren't, you know, basement-dwelling pepes. (laughs) uh, And that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, those basement-dwelling pepes are up to stuff that is affecting the real world. And we have to get, we have to get hip to their lingo. And that's, I mean, that's the whole point of this episode. I mean, we want to just raise awareness and build solidarity.
0: Well, I hope you're able to do that. If not, let us know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, this show is all about love. That's what this show is about. Because hard, hard conversations need to happen a lot. Especially, you know, with, uh, with the way the world is. I hope that you guys perceive it for what we mean it to be. Which is us showing uh, you guys, our listeners, we love you. We love you.
0: I love you too, Evan. Oh, I love you too, David. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Happy season two, everybody. It's here, it's happening. All right everybody, it's David again. The episode is over, but as always, it is time for credits. We had Killing Time by Stanley Gurvich and Departure by Ian Post, which we're listening to right now. And as always, we'd like to say thanks to Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear at the top of every episode. If you are listening to this episode the day it was released, today is the midterms. Most likely you're listening to this after the fact, though. And I'm going to predict right now that regardless of the outcome of the midterms, these white supremacist groups are not going to go away. And honestly, I think the more that we defeat them, the harder they're going to strike back. So I feel like this is going to be an evergreen podcast episode, unfortunately. So I hope that we were up to the task. And that you guys learned something and were at least a little bit inspired by the end. Thanks so much for listening, even though we went over time. We really appreciate you guys.